Okay, if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Just while you're finding your way there, I was uh, aware of that recently that there's been a thing going around, on, I think it was particularly on Twitter, where people were uh, describing the plot line of a film in just one sentence. I thought it was quite an interesting challenge. So what I want to do just to start with, I'm going to share with you some of these sentences that people put out. I want to see if you can guess the film uh, from this description that went out. So there's three that I'm going to do. The first one is this. Father reunites with long lost son, wants him to take over the family business. Star Wars. Star Wars. Very good. Have you seen these already? No. All right. <laughs> Give other people a chance, please. <laughs> um, so that was Star Wars. The second one, this may offend people here, I don't mean it to. Group spends nine hours returning jewellery. What film could that be? That is Lord of the Rings. Yeah, group spending nine hours returning jewellery. Sorry. Uh, and then the third and final one, this is meant to be a sentence. This is the shortest of all of them. And your clue for what film this is, is 42. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I thought, when I saw those, I thought it was quite impressive how someone could condense uh, a few hours or even nine hours worth of films into one sentence. But in a way that kind of encapsulates potentially what the film is about. Obviously, those weren't necessarily done that well, but I'm sure there are other ways that you could just encapsulate entirely what a film is about into just one sentence. And actually, as, we, as you know, Star Wars was mentioned, Lord of the Rings, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy... Just hearing that could um, help us to recall, if we've witnessed those films, if we've seen those films, just to recall what those things are about. So last week, Paul was continuing with this series when we were looking on the Sermon on the Mount. He had one verse that he was speaking on. He had one sentence. And the verse that he was given was this, Jesus saying, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Just one verse. And this verse has commonly become uh, known as the golden rule. And Paul was explaining to us last week that this golden rule, this verse, is really, it's, it's a cover rule for everything that Jesus has said up to this point in the sermon. It covers everything. One verse that encapsula encapsulates, one verse that summarizes the 93 verses that have come before it. It's actually one verse that if we can keep that in mind, if we can keep hold of that, then actually living out the Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of what, uh, that's where, where we need to be. That's what we need to remember. And if we can apply that to every situation that we find ourselves in, we should be on the right path and doing things in the right way. I've said it before in, in sermons, and I know in, in different teaching settings that I've been in, have you ever heard someone say something like, look, if you can just take one thing away this morning, I want it to be this. It's kind of like Jesus has got to this point on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, if you can just take one thing away from what I'm saying... Let it be this, do unto others as you would want done unto you. It's a coverall for the entire sermon. And you kind of think, well, when Jesus is concluding in this way, he's summarising it, we've got this nice uh, one verse that covers everything that Jesus has spoken. That would be a good place for the sermon to finish. And like if, you, what, if you remember one thing, this is it, end of the sermon, let's go and, and let's live this out. But actually, that's not the end of the sermon. There's another section that Jesus goes on to. And again, Paul mentioned last week that Jesus then follows, uh, follows this golden rule with some warnings. And this morning and over the next two weeks, we're going to look at these warnings. And then it's the end of our epic three-year series on the Sermon on the Mount. 
So let's read together Matthew 7, starting at verse 13 and 14. So just two verses today, not one, we got two. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this is uh, the first part of this final section that I said, and what Jesus is now doing, he's looking for, for a response to the message that he's just given, to the sermon that he's just delivered. It's a call that shows itself through four warnings, which all centre around the place of Jesus in the life of the disciple. If you look at the warnings, that's really what it comes down to. What is the place of Jesus in the life of the disciple? And their warnings, they expose the difference between real discipleship and nominal discipleship. What I mean by that is discipleship that exists in in name only. People would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer of Jesus. But actually, if you look at the evidence for it, there's not a lot there. And so these two warnings, Jesus really draws out this contrast. This is what real discipleship looks like. But this is what nominal discipleship can look like. And we're to take heed of these warnings. And through this final section... Through the conclusion to this amazing sermon, Jesus calls for wholehearted commitment to himself. We can't escape that. That's what Jesus is calling for. Wholehearted commitment to himself. So we're going to start with this first picture that Jesus presents. And he presents a picture of two gates and two corresponding paths. We've got a narrow gate whose way is hard and that leads to life. And then we have a wide gate whose way is easy but that way leads to to destruction. Now, I've heard this before. I don't know whether this is your experience or not. I'll hazard a guess that some of you have heard this. Where people would say that Jesus was a really good moral teacher. Whether they were to believe anything else about Jesus, they would say, actually, he said some really good things, really good morals, really good ethics that Jesus set out. Yeah, I can accept him as that. But I would say this. I would say that while Jesus was a good teacher. Clearly he was an excellent moral teacher. He also made a lot of exclusive claims about himself that don't really leave the idea that he was just just merely a good moral teacher open to us. He made lots of claims about who he was and about what he'd come to do. In John 10, he says that he will give eternal life to his people. He says that he and the Father are one. When he said that he and the Father are one, do you know what he was saying to people? He was saying, I am God. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are really exclusive claims that Jesus was making himself. To be honest, they do not sit with someone who would merely be a good moral teacher. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us. C.S. Lewis writes about that in Mere Christianity. He says, Jesus doesn't leave that as an option open to us. You see, the Sermon on the Mount... People could look at the Sermon on the Mount and see it as a collection of good morals, good ethics, but it is not just a collection of ethical statements or proverbs that are given by a good teacher. This, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what life under the rule and reign of God looks like. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, how it, li- how it should be lived out, how it expresses itself. So to merely, for, for us at this point, To merely sit back and admire the teaching of Jesus, that is not an option that's open to us. 
because there's a decision to be made. And that's what these final warnings are about that Jesus brings up. There are decisions to be made. And the question is here is, which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to go? Jesus states clearly, there's only one way you should go, and you should enter by the narrow gate. Just a moment ago, I said that one of the exclusive claims that Jesus made about himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, actually, the only way to have a relationship with God, the only way to be made right with God, who we've been alienated from because of our sin, the only way that you can have that relationship with God is through Jesus. There's no other way. Acts 4 verse 12. I think it was when, when Peter was in front of the council. He says that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus by which we can be saved. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other name by which... We must be saved. It is clear through what Jesus said about himself and through what the Bible teaches that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way back to God. The only way. Does this seem narrow to you? Does this appear exclusive? Because it should do. Because it should do. Because Jesus is the only way. And the way to life that Jesus is talking about in these verses can only be entered into through him. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, uh, For you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ. So when we're saved by Jesus, what should happen is that we die to our old life. We die to our sinful thinking, to our sinful behavior, dying to everything that is not compatible with the kingdom of God. And it's a handing over of everything to Jesus. Handing over of everything. Not holding anything back. Scriptures say the old is gone, the new has come. You're an, a completely new creation. The Bible speaks of it as being born again. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is not about saying the right things. It's not about using the right terminology. It's not about being associated with the right individuals or being associated with the right names. It's not about that. It's about dying to our, own, to our old selves, being born again, a completely new creation. It's, it's specific. In that sense, it's narrow. But then there's another gate, and this other gate is wide, and its way is easy. Now, um, it's co-op funeral care, uh, they did, did a survey of the most popular songs that, fun uh, that are played at funerals. Does any, would anyone like to guess what the most popular song at funerals was in 2016? Yeah. It's Frank Sinatra, My Way. I did it my way. Uh, that's pretty much been top of the charts for consistently year after year. Apart from, interestingly, in 2014, it was knocked off top spot by Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I thought that was a bit of a strange anomaly. But now Frank Sinatra's My Way is back at the top of the charts for songs played at funerals. I personally think that that's quite telling. It's a good ind indication of what our society and what our culture is like. I will do things my way. 
It's not for anyone else to tell me how I should live my life. I'm going to work this out myself. Why should anyone tell me the way that I should live my life? What's right and what's wrong? That what I feel or think is wrong? Even when it comes to spirituality. Do you know what? I might be interested in spirituality, but I'm going to kind of work it through my way. I'm going to go on my own journey and make my own discoveries. Whatever route I take is the right route for me. I think that's the way that people can think. Or even, have you ever even heard people say, do you know what, there are, there are many paths to God. It can't be that one religion's right. Maybe there are lots of paths that we can take. And as long as I, as long as I end up in the right place, does it really matter what route I take? There are many religions. There are many worldviews. There are many philosophies that people give themselves to. Jesus also called out people who uh, would live not for the approval of God, but they'd live for themselves and the, approval of, of, and the approval of others. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I was last speaking, and I know I've mentioned it before when, when we've been working through this series. Jesus, time and time again, calls out hypocrites. He hates hypocrisy. People who would present themselves as being very holy, as being very worshipful, as being very God-fearing, who would present themselves as being part of God's people, but yet their motivation for their actions and their behaviour and the things they were doing was because they wanted to be seen by other people. They wanted to receive the praise of the people. That's what they were wanting to do. Living for the approval of others, not for the approval of God. <laughs> My observation... I think, is that Christianity is seen by many to be too demanding, too narrow, too exclusive, outdated. It may have had its place in the past, but it's not relevant or needed anymore. I've heard all of those things numerous times. So the truth of a narrow exclusive way to God through Jesus and through Jesus alone is a challenge to the way that many think, feel and live. But Jesus says this. He says any gate but Jesus. Any way but his way does not lead to life but to destruction. Ultimately what that means is it's separation from God. That's what any other path, any other way will lead to. Separation from God. It's a point in, in John 17 where Jesus is praying to his Father and he's, he says that eternal life is to know the only true God and to know Jesus Christ whom you sent. So if you take Jesus out of it, what do you have? <coughs> eternal life is about knowing and about being known. It's about relationship. So then when Jesus moves on from these verses, and this is what Luke's going to be spending his time on next week, so I won't say too much or get him into too many corners. But next week, Jesus moves on to address those they claim to have done many amazing things in the name of Jesus. They would have done things that would have looked very impressive. People would have looked at and perhaps thought really well of them. But what Jesus does, he condenses it right down to the core issue. He says, actually, the core issue is whether you are known by him or not whether you have a relationship with him or not. That's what it boils down to. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now I mentioned at the start of this concluding section of the... uh, Sorry, I mentioned at the start. This concluding section of the sermon focuses... On the, place of the, on the place of Jesus in the life of the disciples. That's what Jesus is getting us to think about. Uh, what's the place of Jesus in the life of the disciple? Now the Greek word for disciple means learner. That's what it's translated as. It means learner. So disciples are people who learn to be like Jesus. And learn to do what Jesus could do. And becoming more like Jesus. Walking the narrow path. Demands costly obedience and service. The way is hard. In Matthew 28, Jesus says to his disciples, he gives them a commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. You need to baptise them. And then I need you to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. So they need to be obedient to the things that I've taught. So, So make disciples of all nations. People get saved, people get baptised, their position has changed, they're now sons and daughters of God. But we don't leave it there. We need to teach them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. So we have this change, in, we are now sons and daughters of God, but there is still this demand, this call from Jesus that we need to be obedient to what he calls us to do. But the order there, notice the order there, it's so key. Saved by Jesus, brought into God's family, then we live a life of obedience. It's not the other way around. I read somewhere in my preparation, I read read this, I thought it was wonderful. They said that what Jesus offers does not begin from us reaching up, but from God's reaching down. So the life that we live is a response to who Jesus is and to what he's done for us. You live the life of the kingdom once you've entered into it. Okay? So the life of the kingdom, you live it once you've entered into it. Mike Breen, I don't know if that's a name uh, familiar to many of you, but Mike Breen's done a lot of really excellent study and teaching into discipleship and the role of discipleship within the church. He says that a disciple is someone who, who, with increased intentionality and passing time, has a life and ministry that looks more like the life and ministry of Jesus. They increasingly have his heart and his character and are able to do the types of things that we see Jesus doing. He says that we don't need to look far in the New Testament to see this happening. Just look at the lives of the disciples, the apostles and the communities they led. Over time, over time, they look more and more like Jesus. That's what discipleship is, becoming more and more like Jesus. But this way, the way of discipleship is hard. It squeezes, it presses, but it does so. Sorry, but as it does so, it transforms us and it changes us to become more and more like Jesus. But there's a process to it. Matthew 22, verse 37, someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? If you could pick one, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Essentially what Jesus is saying is love God with absolutely everything that you have. Don't hold anything back. Love him with every fibre of your being. You're not to keep areas of your life kind of off limits. Jesus 
You can have everything of me apart from this part. I don't want to give this part of my life up. Or, do you know what, actually, I don't want you, don't want you doing anything with that yet. No, actually, we're called to give everything to him. Which is why Jesus is calling us to decide. There's no comfortable middle road. There's the, there's the narrow, hard way. Or there's the wide, broad way. There's no comfortable middle path. We have to make that decision. Your emotions, your sexuality, your marriage, your finances, your prayer life, fasting, anxiety, forgiveness, the way you relate to your friends, the way you relate to your enemies. Jesus touches on all of these and more through the Sermon on the Mount. There's more that I could have brought out on that. Because the Sermon on the Mount touches on every single aspect of our life. It's not about holding anything back. It's about allowing Jesus to come and shape us and change us. Who here has felt challenged and provoked? Perhaps even at points made to feel uncomfortable when we've explored the Sermon on the Mount over the course of this series. I have. Even when I've stood up here speaking to you, as I'm speaking, I'm feeling challenged by a lot of stuff. There will be times when the way that Jesus calls us to live, it will challenge our character. It will, uh, there might be internal battles, battles against unhelpful ways of thinking, battles against habits that have become ingrained. I can guarantee you this, there will be times when it causes us to butt heads with culture and society. But we need to press on and persevere. The Christian walk is a race. It's a lifelong journey. One that requires endurance. One that requires perseverance. Has anyone here um, seen Band of Brothers? Anyone? It, I, um, it is a really exceptional uh, piece of storytelling and, and filmmaking. It's a, it's a ten-part series based on real people, based on real events through the Second World War. And it focuses, it's the story of Easy Company, of the US Army 101st Airborne Division in World War II. One of the later episodes, uh, we're now in February 1945, and Easy Company are based on, on the Rhine just across from Germany. At this point is the arrival of Lieutenant Henry Jones. He's a junior officer, fresh out of the academy, never seen any battle, has no field experience and he's called in uh, as a replacement leader for second company. Second company they are a group of guys who are battle hardened and battle weary and this young guy straight out of the academy comes in and is expected to lead them, to give them orders and tell them what they're meant to do. It does not go down well, they do not respond at all well to him. Um, because they look at him and think, You've just, you have not experienced what we have. You don't know what we're going through. How can you demand this of us? How can you ask this of us? The reason I, say, I share that is because I think sometimes, and I know in my own life, I've gone through things, through circumstances, where I think, God, how can you let me go through this? If you, or even to the extent of thinking, if you knew what I was going through, if you knew how this felt, how could you let me go through what I'm going through? But when Jesus calls us to a life of obedience, he's doing so, he's doing so as one who's lived obediently. And actually, when we're talking about obedience and discipleship, we look to Jesus as our example. He's not removed from it. 
It's not like he demands all these things of us without having gone through it or experienced it himself. Hebrews 5 says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He came to know firsthand what it costs to maintain obedience in the midst of suffering. That's Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. It's not that he's unable to sympathize with us. He's been tempted in every way as we have. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus has been there. He's done it. He's gone through it. He's been obedient. He's demonstrated it. He's shown us what it is. So this way is hard. This life of discipleship is hard. But I don't want our heads to drop. I don't want us to be discouraged. Because though Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard, he also tells us where it leads. He says it leads to life. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus promises. John 5, uh, sorry, John 15, 9-11, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Fullness of life, fullness of joy. Philippians 4, 6-7, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fullness of life, fullness of joy, peace. All offered, all promised by Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, a, a Christian speaker and author, she once said that the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. I read that for the first time yesterday. And I just thought that is so helpful and so encouraging. Because oftentimes I think, God, if you could just take me out of the circumstances that I'm in, I'll be okay and everything will be all right. But she says, no, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Sent an email out uh, a week or so ago to the church and part of the email I sent out, I said how God has been working on a few areas of my life. I didn't go into any more details and nor will I at this point. But I know that God has been working in a number of areas of my life. And what I know he's doing is he's drawing my character and my behaviour more in line to being like Jesus. I know that for sure. I also know that it's been uncomfortable. <coughs> I also know that I feel like I've been pressed and squeezed and challenged through it. 
but I also know that it's proven to be fruitful already, just in the early stages. And for me, it's bringing freedom and joy and peace into my life, even though the process itself might not be the most comfortable. When we're weary, grieving, frustrated, isolated and tempted, other roads will look good. Other roads will look good. They will look very appealing. They'll look comfortable. They'll look easy. There will be many short-term pleasures that will present themselves to you. But earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, I think this was last autumn, I think it was Paul that was speaking on this. Jesus says that we're to store up our treasures in heaven. To give our things to, to, sorry, to give ourselves to the things that are going to last for eternity, not the things that are going to fade or be destroyed. I read an article by a guy called John Bloom this week. He says that the path of least resistance is often the path of least reward. Something worth considering. He said that Jesus goes much further. He says a path like this leads to destruction. If God is your treasure, you will gain everything. But if he's not, you'll lose it all. That's what Jesus is saying through this picture of the two gates and the two ways. Many will find the wide gate, few will find the narrow. It's kind of hard to know what to do with these verses, perhaps. Um, Maybe I'll set something for growth groups for us to kind of dig into this a little bit more and to think about this more. And whether Jesus is saying this is, uh, if, if you were to look at it on the face of it, you could say, well, is this saying that ultimately there's going to be very, comparatively very few that come to know Jesus compared to those that don't? I'm not sure. I don't want to read too much into that because elsewhere Jesus speaks of many that are saved. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says that God desires that none should perish and that all should reach, all should reach repentance. So we need to hold these verses in, uh, together hold them, and work through that way. But one thing I do know is that if, if the narrow way is hard to find, then surely we need to be doing all we can to help people find that way. If it is hard to find, then we need to be pointing people in that direction. Not just hoping maybe one day they might find it, one day they might find Jesus. Actually, we have a responsibility to point people to him and to share him with them. To be his witnesses. Something else I want us to consider that I found particularly helpful is that no matter how many are seen going along the broad road, no matter how many people you see walking along that broad and easy way, it's imperative that we choose the narrow one. No matter what else we see going on. Don't look for the crowd. Don't look for the popular route. Walking the popular route could be much easier, could be much more comfortable, it could look very appealing. I think people can search for safety in numbers, there's security there, there's comfort there. But while it might offer comfort and security, it's false comfort. And it's false security. 
Because the only security worth having is the, is the security that's found in Jesus, Jesus Christ alone. Now when Jesus called his disciples, he called them to follow him. Oftentimes, the crowds, when they were around Jesus, the crowds were with him, they were for him. Yeah, they were following him. But then there were other times when the crowds were against Jesus. Don't follow the crowd. Follow Jesus. What are you saying? Can we have the band up, please? We're going to head back to a time of worship. Just while the band are coming up, I just want to read something to you from a guy called Kevin DeYoung. Yeah, uh, I think he leads a church out in the States. I think it just sums up this morning really well. It goes back really to this, you know the saying, well, all, all paths, surely all paths lead to God. He says that all paths, he says all paths lead to God, but only one path will present you before God without fault and with great joy. He says pick a path, any path, it will take you to God. Trust me, you will stand before him one day. You will meet your maker. You will see the face of Christ. There are many ways up the mountain, but only one will result in life instead of destruction. Yes, Christianity can seem narrow, strange and hard. Jesus was often thought narrow, strange and hard too. But somehow, the narrow way is the only way. The strange path is the true path. And the hard life is the one that leads to eternal life. There are many roads to God, but only one will make you holy, and only one will bring you home. May we stand? I'd just love to pray for us. I'm going to hand over to, to Ruth and the team.